This is Car Expert. Hopefully we don't have a new CEO come in and scrap plans that Bellore had put in because that's effectively what Bellore did when he came in for Jaguar. There's nobody else doing this yet and you have to take your hat off to LTV. They're offering something that really only the aftermarket up to now has been able to offer. In this case, the Tenale actually feels like it's got the tech and the design inside and the space inside to compete toe-to-toe with its rivals. Hello to you, Scott Colley. Hello, Mandy Turner. And hello, William Stockford. Hey, Mandy. Super keen to hear about your Italy trip, Scully, which you have just got back from, and uh, no doubt we're going to be talking about all the Alfa Romeos you've driven while you're over there. Um, How was it? Uh, It was very short, uh, which won't come as news to anyone who's done the international motoring trip thing before. Uh, I left on Tuesday afternoon and I arrived on Saturday afternoon back in Oz. So brief but really good fun. Um, Got to drive the Sonale, which we're going to talk about later on. Um, but also got to check out the Alfa Romeo Museum um, and got a tour of the Bolocco Proving Ground in the passenger seat of a Julia GTAM, um, which was a real highlight of mine. Uh, the driver goes, oh, there's only one of you, so we'll go for the tour in something fun and then proceeded just to be sideways and flat out absolutely everywhere um, as we sort of flashed past an electric Ferrari prototype and saw that um, the Maserati Gran Turismo tester that we've been covering and the whole test track itself is incredible. There's a, a proper paved circuit and then there's essentially Alfa Romeo's knockoff of the Nürburgring. So it's got a 21K quite bumpy, narrow, undulating test circuit and there's off-road tracks and that sort of thing. It, uh, and it's all sort of outside of Turin and in Italy. So you're at the foot of the mountains as well. It really is beautiful. Uh, I didn't do any of the driving on that particular part of the trip uh, and the driver I had kept ah. telling me how to cold the tyres were as he like ripped through the gears and slid the thing around. So we didn't set any records. We did see four deer running across the track, which forced him to hit the brakes hard and he sort of swore in Italian then said something rapidly over the radio. And I said, oh, does that happen often? He goes, never seen that before and then just got on with the driving at full speed again. Um, so no <laughs> lap records, but we did see a record number of deer. <laughs> Wow. Any uh, any particular favourite at the uh, Alpha Museum? Uh, there were a couple. We got to see the the main museum that anyone can walk in and see, but there's also like a, a shed essentially, a collection that they only show certain people, and we were lucky enough to have a look at that. And there were two cars in there, one of which was a, a prototype Group C Le Mans racer that would have gone head-to-head in the late 90s, early 2000s with, I think, the Mercedes Sauber um, that – um, Mark Webber had his massive crash in uh, that era of Le Mans races, but never saw the light of day. Um, and an, I think it was a 155 Pro Car, which was mid-engine V8 um, in the body of essentially a regular uh, 155 chassis. Um, and they all, they're from that era that touring cars didn't look like race cars. They looked like road cars with box flares and arrows stuck on them. It looked absolutely incredible. Um, I think also sort of 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s, there were some just incredible concept cars, lots of wedgy things shaped by all sorts of Italian design houses from Pininfarina onwards. Um, In an era that I think maybe designers thought the future of cars were going to look like spaceships, Um, real reminder of how boring some cars look today, to be honest. Uh, and, And that just, again, really special to see in person. And... I suppose it gives you a different appreciation for the Alfa Romeo brand, which 
recently in Australia um, and more broadly around the world has had quite a limited range. And although the Julia is beautiful, it's not classically beautiful in the way that some of these concept cars were, but you can see where Alpha's come from and why it does some things the way it does. We, we know that Alphas aren't really that much of a common sight on Australian roads, but are they extra common on Italian roads? Uh, look, on the roads of the Proving Ground, they're incredibly common. Um, <laughs> in, the, in the areas around there, definitely saw more of them than I've seen in Melbourne and, you know, a few base Julias and things in specs that you wouldn't normally see here. To be honest, we were there for such a short time um, and we saw limited yeah. sort of scope of things. So I can't give you a proper count, but there were some really interesting cars just in general that you don't see in Australia. I think the new Opal stuff looks fantastic on the road. Um, to be honest, given the choice between that and some of the stuff we're getting from Citroen, I think we could almost turf Citroen and bring Opal to Australia instead. Um, I'm sorry to any Francophiles listening who are really attached to Citroen, but that brand, the Opal brand, compared to where it was when it was last in Australia and when Holden was importing some of its stuff, seems to have a real presence about it now. The other car that I saw um, is not a particularly common one and we get it in Australia, but there are very few things cooler than when we're doing about 160 k's an hour on the Autostrada with our driver picking us up from the airport and a yellow Ferrari comes past like we aren't even moving. Uh, in this case, an 812 super fast with a whole lot of yellow bits on the diffuser and that sort of thing. Um, it, it struck me as particularly Italian. You've got, you know, our driver sitting inches from the bumper of the car in front because he's impatient, but he gets out of the way for the Ferrari that's going flat out as the fast train comes past at 300 k's an hour. It, it just was cool. It just it made the, the speed freak wow. in me happy. Uh, well, yeah, as you said earlier, Scully, we will uh, look forward to hearing <laughs> your Alpha Tenale review coming up soon. It is news time, and we'll throw to you first, Will, with uh, the BYD Atto 3 receiving a rather good ANCAP safety rating. Yes, yeah, so it hasn't been quite as smooth sailing as I think BYD or its local distributor EV Direct uh, would have hoped uh, with the introduction of its Atto 3 electric SUV. Uh, basically, Safety Authority ANCAP gave it a five-star rating, but didn't apply that for Australia because even though the vehicle had been approved for sale in Australia, uh, they had to, BYD had to temporarily suspend sales of the Addo 3 while they fixed an issue with the position or the placement of child restraint anchor points. So uh, they, they confirmed earlier this month that they were resuming sales. So now... Uh, now the five-star ANCAP rating has been applied for Australia for all vehicles built from the 21st of November onwards. BYD is working to rectify vehicles built before that date. Um, what they did was they've sent out a communication to customers saying that the rear centre seat um, will now be able to be used for a child seat with a rear anchor point anchor point available once they make this change uh but the isofix child seat anchor in the front passenger seat will be disengaged and look they acknowledge that for a lot of byd auto 3 buyers the placement of child seat anchor points is really not a big deal um but they've they've said hey look this safety is our number one priority we want to fix this but now that they can actually tout uh, a five-star end cap rating that's that's 
going to make a big difference for anybody who was kind of on the fence about buying a BYD at 03. Um, and hopefully this is the last of the kind of stumbling blocks that, they, that they'll have to deal with after this stop sales ending. Uh, the ANCAP rating finally applies. They've made some tweaks to their service pricing. Really the only other thing about the BYD at 03's rollout that's been a little bit rough was... Um, was the warranty situation uh, a lot of people were complaining about uh, the different different aspects of the warranty some some uh, some components were covered for for a certain period of time others were covered for a longer period of time etc etc um, but ultimately you know not the smoothest rollout for the vehicle but it's reach it's well and truly reaching customers now we're starting to see them on the roads and uh, hopefully well for their sake uh, it'll be smooth sailing from from here on out i think you might be being a bit generous there will they say safety is their top priority and they're happy to do it but ultimately if you don't comply with australian design rules it doesn't matter what your priority is you can't sell the car so uh, I do think it's worth mentioning that regardless of how BYD feels about what it has to do, it, it had to do it. It wasn't an option. It wasn't a choice. Um, it's mandatory to comply with those rules. It was a I bit strange that it had been approved for sale and then they realised subsequently, oh, no, we, we need to actually fix this for it to be complied. So you're, you're absolutely right. There, but there was, there was definitely a stuff up, stuff up there. Absolutely. I think the other thing worth mentioning and how you see this depends on your attitude. Um, it could either be seen as a good thing because BYD has very quickly turned around and fixed a problem that, you know, required working with government regulators and on-the-fly changes. And for a small company that's still finding its feet in Australia, that's a tough thing to do. I think the downside is, though, and we've seen with BYD and with EV Direct, its distributor so far, is that they have that startup mentality of moving really quickly and working things out on the fly. And when it comes to big, slow-moving government bodies and, and big purchases like cars, that's harder to get away with than it is with a phone or a computer or a tablet. So just like with the warranty, um, there are going to be some owners who are not necessarily heartened by the way EV Direct's gone about this. And I think the fact that this problem has arisen, even though the car was approved for sale and BYD's done the right thing by fixing the problem, isn't necessarily going to instill confidence in buyers who are on the fence about the Auto 3. You also have to consider mm. the fact that, you know, Honda, technically its HRV is a four-seater in Australia. It's a five-seater everywhere else, but Honda didn't want to invest the money in making it compliant with that particular Australian design rules. They just said, oh, it's a four-seater. So to BYD's credit, they have actually said, okay, we, we will fix um, vehicles that have already been built so that it is compliant with this Australian design rule. Okay, so the next story now, Scully, I can't believe this. Uh, the Jaguar Land Rover CEO is leaving just after a couple of years in the chair. It, it, he is. Uh, Thierry Bellore has only been at Jaguar Land Rover for two years. Um, he has said he's leaving the company for personal reasons, but it's not health-related. Um, so essentially that usually is the same thing as leaving to spend more time with his family. It sounds like he's been pushed out and there is reporting from Europe that would suggest that's the case. Um, he's going to hang on until the end of December 2022, but from that point he's not going to be a part of Jaguar Land Rover's parent either, Tata. Um, and it sort of seems like he's leaving because this vision that he laid out for the company at the beginning of 2021, the reimagined business plan, 
has been much harder to execute than expected. Uh, that's based on a story that we've read from Automotive News Europe, which has a little bit more of an inside track on it. But essentially, back at the start of 2021, he killed the next generation XJ um, and he's turned Jaguar into what will become an EV-only brand from 2025 when it wants to start going head-to-head with the likes of Bentley instead of BMW. Start of this year, he revealed that Jag was developing its own electric-only architecture called Panthera, and it was working with Magna, which already builds the iPACE along with cars like the BMW Z4, the Fisker Ocean in Austria, um, to make sure this platform opened the door for next-gen Jags to have really interesting proportions. Based on what we understand, there's a couple of SUVs and a coupe coming. Um, This is the latest, let's call it uncertainty, for a company that seems to be facing perpetual uncertainty at the moment. For all of the the money that's come in from Tata and for all the excellent products that Jaguar and Land Rover and Range Rover have revealed recently, the company's not been able to shore up its finances. Um, It's now got a new Defender, which is a brilliant car, as we know. The new Range Rover and Range Rover Sport have received really strong acclaim. And based on what we've been reading out of Europe, it does sound like the company's finances are moving in the right direction and order banks are strong. But clearly someone at Tata thought maybe this wasn't happening as fast as it should uh, and therefore they've given Bellore the nudge. What it means for the reimagined plan, we don't know. But I suppose there is heart to be taken from what's happening over at Geely and Volvo at the moment. I look at Volvo as quite similar to Jaguar Land Rover because it is a strong European manufacturer that's now owned by overseas money. And I know it's not been owned for as long as Jaguar has by Tata, but with a bit of time, with a confident business plan and with some runway to ramp up towards the longer term goals, Volvo's built itself into a really credible rival for Mercedes, Audi and BMW and in Australia has some really bold plans. So hopefully as the chip crisis eases, as you know, Tata continues to back Jaguar Land Rover and as new management comes in, it can move in the same direction as Volvo and really start to re-establish itself in terms of volume and also in terms of what the brand stands for. I feel sorry for executives that leave a company for actual personal reasons and say that they're leaving for personal reasons because everyone just reads that as code for, okay, he was shown the door. Um, and I do I do feel sorry for because that, that Automotive News Europe article was absolutely fascinating um, where it spoke about the fact that Jaguar, Land Rover being a a smaller luxury automaker uh, has more difficulty getting enough chips. And of course, its cars need just as many chips as the likes of, of BMW and, and Mercedes-Benz and, and, and so on. But it's it's very interesting to see what's going on with Jaguar because we can't actually see what's going on with Jaguar because ever since they, he announced that they were scrapping the next generation XJ, Jaguar was becoming EV only in just a few years, et cetera, et cetera. It's been almost like perpetual radio silence for that brand. And obviously Land Rover is, you know, the 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 brand that has the wider range um, and it's an SUV brand. And of course, everyone wants SUVs, but it's just a little bit disheartening to, to see how to see how little we hear about the future of Jaguar. Yeah, Will, uh, personal reasons is the equivalent of saying the breakup was mutual, but she started the conversation, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Yeah, look, Jaguar's silence has been deafening, but I almost would take that over what we've seen from some other brands where they do a whole lot of talking about what's coming and never actually deliver it. Um, 
fingers crossed there is some good stuff in the pipeline and in 12 months' time or even 24 months' time, we can see what Bellore was working on and maybe his legacy changes. And hopefully we don't have a new CEO come in and scrap plans that Bellore had put in because that's effectively what Bellore did when he came in for Jaguar. All right, and before we get Mike Costello in for the last car news story, Will, the 2023 Subaru Impreza has been unveiled, but we're not sure when it's coming here. Yeah, very few surprises with the Impreza because we'd already seen the Crosstrack, which is uh, what the XV will be now known as in in Australia. Uh, Much like the current Impreza and XV, uh, they look pretty much alike. Uh, And as with the new Crosstrack, it's a very subtle design evolution over the outgoing model. Uh, the Impreza will now be hatchback only, so the sedan is no more, despite a sedan having been available in every single generation of Impreza. Uh, as you can imagine, it sits a little bit lower to the ground than the Crosstrek. It doesn't have the you know plastic cladding everywhere, um, and we can probably expect it to be a little bit cheaper. Super Impreza sales in Australia are nowhere near the likes of the Toyota Corolla, Hyundai i30, even the Mazda 3. Uh, But Subaru Australia has said, um, they have indicated, I should say, uh, that the new Impreza will still come here. They've said Impreza's been part of the Subaru family for 30 years. We look forward to sharing more details for the Australian market in due course. But you're right, Mandy, we we don't exactly know what what due course means when we should uh, expect to uh, see it in Australia. So it moves to an updated version of the Subaru global platform that's said to be stiffer there are two engines to choose from uh both flat fours naturally aspirated there's two liter with 113 kilowatts and 197 newton meters of torque and a 2.5 liter with 136 kilowatts and 241 newton meters all-wheel drive and a continuously variable transmission are standard the interior again looks a lot like the Crosstrek, which again looks a lot like the wrx and, and other new generation subarus with that that tall portrait oriented touchscreen infotainment system overall it's it's a handsome uh new generation but not super memorable <laughs> but i'm um, very curious to hear what you guys think about the new impreza looks like a subaru I uh, don't have much more to say than that. Uh, I think at least we're in an era now where looking like a Subaru is a fairly good thing. There was a period there where looking like a Subaru meant some awkwardness. I'll take dull but handsome over consistent stylistically but kind of ugly. Um, and I think although its sales aren't nearly up there with the Corolla, the Impreza is a really important car for Subaru because it's a brand that once people are in, they tend not to leave. You buy one, you tend to just work your way up the range as your family grows, um, is our experience with Subaru and, and what we hear from the brand's own research. So although it might not sell in huge numbers relative to some of its rivals, I've got plenty of friends whose first car was an Outback, sorry, an Impreza, excuse me, uh, who are now looking at an Outback for the family uh, or, or similar to that. If Subaru loses that entry point, there's no telling how many sales of bigger, more expensive, more profitable cars it loses down the track because those people never entered the brand. So fingers crossed it can still get to Australia in a relatively affordable form and sit below the cross track as maybe the smaller selling but still important entry point. And finally, we welcome Mike Costello to talk all things LDV. Uh, Moko, it seems this Chinese make is really moving forward at a quick pace at the moment. Yeah, so up until now, LDV has really been best known as a purveyor of cheap, affordable, mostly diesel-powered utes and vans and as such, has really made quite a bit of cut through in the Australian market, tending to compete against 
used Hiluxes or Hiaces or things of that ilk. But now it's gone from follower to leader because it's the first company to offer electric versions of a dual cab ute, people mover and large van in Australia. And in so doing, it's really tapping into China's worldwide dominance in EVs. So more than half of the world's EVs are in China. And this really reflects that. Now, the first cab off the rank is called the MIFA 9, M-I-F-A 9. There's already a petrol version of one of these that competes with the Kia Carnival, but the MIFA 9 is the electric version, more than 400 k's of range and 90 kilowatt hour um, battery in the floor. Every luxury you can imagine, including massaging rear captain's chairs in a seven-seat, uh, you know, it's basically a shuttle for luxury hotels and transport services and things like that. The price, though, well, it's between fifty-two and fifty-eight thousand dollars more expensive than the equivalent petrol. So the the base model, the MIFA Nine mode, is one hundred and six grand. It's one hundred and seventeen thousand for the MIFA Nine Executive, and one hundred and thirty-one thousand dollars for the MIFA Nine Lux. Now, to its credit, uh, the only sort of vague competitor at the moment is the Mercedes-Benz EV Tourer, which is van-based, bit more utilitarian, bit smaller, also one hundred and sixteen grand. But I'm not so sure LDV has quite the badge cred that Mercedes-Benz does. That was going to be the question I was going to ask, Moko. LDV's gone from competing with the likes of GWM and call it Mitsubishi with its ute to taking on Mercedes-Benz with quite a challenging looking, and I'm sure it's got some presence in person, electric van. Is it planning to do anything to sort of lift its brand and pitch to these new people, or is it just hoping that the fact it's got an electric vehicle in that segment is enough to drag them in? I think a lot of it is down to the fact that it's kind of one of the only games in town. And by default, it will lift LDV's brand because the, the fleet organisations and the businesses and let's be honest, maybe a few early adopters in the private market that are looking at it would probably have never considered an LDV before. So by just by virtue of having the product, it'll lift the brand. Um, now, I don't want to get too caught up in talking about this car in depth. You should go read the review because there is a little bit to get through here. The other one is the uh, Deliver 9 or I should say E-Deliver 9. Now, the LDV Deliver 9 is sort of uh, Ford Transit, Mercedes-Benz Sprinter, Volkswagen Crafter, big van, top of the range, big van, uh, Renault Master being another iteration of that. And it's only been on sale for less than two years, but it is now Australia's top-selling large van. It outsells the Mercedes-Benz Sprinter, mostly on the back of really keen pricing. But big fleet operators and, and logistics companies that buy vans don't buy unreliable shitboxes as a rule. So the fact that they're selling so many of these suggests that they actually are probably doing quite well. But once again, the electric version, which is designed for last-mile package services and things like that, uh, actually, there's already one going around with IKEA stickering all over it, so it's already in use by IKEA. Um, it's, it's just so much more expensive than the diesel. So the, the diesel LDV Deliver 9 it kicks off at uh, 43,490 drive away and tops out at 46,990 drive away. But the cheapest EV van midroof is $116,500 before on road. So again, more than twice the price of the diesel, just like it was in the case of the EV MIFA 9 versus petrol MIFA. Um, and the high roof is a smidgen more. There is a cab chassis, which you can do with you want with. It's basically a tractor head with, a, with a, just a naked chassis on the back that you can put load boxes and things like that on. Smaller battery, 65 kilowatt hours versus 88 kilowatt hours. Um, that's 99,900 before on roads. But that really, really reduces that range. So the driving range for the van is uh, up to about 280 k's on the WLTP cycle, plummeting to 150 k's for the cab chassis. 
The top speed is limited, though, to 90 kilometres an hour. I did manage to get it to show 94 kmh going down a hill, um, but I think that was more based off what the car speed said as opposed to the GPS speed. Um, and it's an overnight charge situation at your base. Now, LDV says that it's had some of these out with fleet partners already, and they're reporting that most of the time those vans are returning to base at night with about 30% charge remaining. So that driving range seems to be on the money. Um, and again, LDV is really probably planning on utilising its first on-sale uh, situation to find customers because there are a few electric vans coming. The 4D Transit launches in January of 2023. That was delayed slightly, but that's basically an identical version to this in terms of size, capacity, things like that. Mercedes E-Sprinter next gen arrives in 2024, and the Renault Master E-Tech also in 2024. Uh, Europe is becoming a real hub for electric vans, so there's a lot of these types of products that are coming to Australia, but right at this very moment in time, if you want one, once again, the LDV is sort of the only game in town at this size van part of the market. The one we actually want to know about, and I know it's not a Ford F-150 Lightning or a Rivian no. R1T, but is the electric ute because it's the first of its kind in Australia. So how much yes. are you going to pay for the ET60 and what's it like to drive? Yeah, so I saved the best for last because let's be honest, utes are what Australians really love. Three of the top five selling vehicles are the Ford Ranger, Toyota Hilux, Isuzu D-Max. About one in five of all new vehicles sold are utes, most of which are dual cabs. Now, the LDV T60 Max with the diesel engine, again, has carved out a really good place. It's offering essentially a new product with a seven-year warranty that costs the same as a five-year-old Hilux or Ranger. So you can really see why people are getting into them. But the ET60 is a different kettle of fish. So it kicks off at 92,990 RRP or before on-road costs. So Again, and I'm saying this for the third time, but it is more than double the price of the diesel on which it is based. Um, it's also worth saying that that price puts it above the threshold for the Albanese government's proposed fringe benefits tax exemption, which would be a real, um, or it's basically designed to incentivise businesses to buy EVs by giving them tax breaks. But this vehicle wouldn't be eligible to meet that policy as it stands because it's too expensive. And its price is also above the threshold for the various state-based rebates that we see around, like the $3,000 rebate you get in Victoria or New South Wales. The other point that I would make is that in New Zealand, and New Zealand is a much more advanced market for EVs, it has a far higher take-up of EVs than Australia does. But in New Zealand, the ET60 has already been on sale for some time. And in that market, it's $79.90 drive away New Zealand which is $74,000 Australian. And then on top of that, you get an $8,625 government rebate. So I can't work out how it's 20 grand more in Australia than it is in New Zealand, considering it's the same thing. Um, which again, if I'm being a cynic about it, I'm thinking, gee, LDV has this market cornered all to itself. So perhaps it's pricing it accordingly. Do you know what I mean? I'm getting a little bit cynical in that sense. But let's maybe dig into the vehicle itself before we start talking about how it actually behaves. So under the bonnet, there's a lot of empty space. There's no front trunk or front just yet, but there is a half empty sort of area where there's just a drive motor. 
130 kilowatts of power, 310 newton meters of torque from a permanent magnet synchronous motor driving the rear wheels. So rear wheel drive is standard, not four wheel drive like the diesel and a couple of different throttle settings to make it go faster off the line or taper off to save energy. Um, it's powered by the electricity stored in an 88.5 kilowatt hour lithium ion battery pack, which gives you a WLTP range of 330 kilometers claimed, which in the real world probably equates to about 300 k's. Um, that's based on consumption of 27 kilowatts per 100 or 27 kilowatt hours, as you say, per 100 k's. Um, an 11 kilowatt AC charge uh, takes between 9 and 13 hours, depending on whether you've got a single phase or a three phase connector. And then you can top it up from 20 to 80% on a DC charger at 80 kilowatt in about 45 minutes for those back to base pickups. Now, commendably, it does have a 1,000 kilogram payload, so it retains that payload, but its towing capacity is paired right back to 1,000 kilograms, so in other words, almost pointless. And its top speed is limited to 120 kmh, which in Australia shouldn't be too much of a concern. Moko, on towing, did you get the opportunity to test the car with a load on the back and did you get the chance to see what impact that has on range? Yeah, so this is why the reviews on all three of these vehicles are called quick drives because it was a bit strange. So LDV, understandably, is really excited about this event. You know, three brand new electric vehicles, price notwithstanding, it's a pretty exciting story for the company to tell, which made it all the more strange that they decided to hold the launch on a single day and with a lot of media attending which meant that I got in total 12 minutes wheel time in each vehicle and then the same amount in the front passenger seat in each vehicle. So 25 minutes per car. I have not come away from that with any firm views on these vehicles and it needs to be caveated that I can't say fundamentally what the car is like. What we do know is from experiences in the United States with electric pickup trucks over there, Motor Trend did a great piece using an F-150 Lightning and some others to tow, is that when you tow, you range absolutely plummets off a cliff um, and so I would expect it to be no different for the LDV. I think anyone who's putting a thousand kilos in the back of one of these is probably kind of missing the point. I don't think they're designed to lug really really heavy things. Um, they're more designed for sort of I guess more mild applications but it's safe to say the harder you work it the more power it hoons through and the more battery energy you go through. Um, otherwise it's pretty similar to the diesel T60. It's not like it's on a bespoke platform or anything like that. Double wishbone suspension at the front, leafs at the rear, disc brakes all around, plus regenerative braking, so it actually does brake quite well. Um, it's not particularly well equipped, I have to say. I mean, it doesn't even have cruise control, let alone all of the active safety features that we've come to expect in modern utes. So you've got a 10.25-inch touchscreen with Apple CarPlay, a reversing camera, fake leather seats, um, halogen headlights, a tyre repair kit. I mean, I would have thought a spare tyre might have been something that you'd want in a ute, but but there we are. Um, so really what this feels like is a $40,000 diesel ute with a battery shoved in it. It's less capable than twice the price. So I can't come away saying to you that this is the EV ute that is going to suddenly make every trader in Australia make the switch. Obviously the market's not there yet. So I need to balance my views and say that commendably enough, LDV is the first in the market. There's nobody else doing this yet. And you have to take your hat off to LDV. They're offering something that really only the aftermarket up to now has been able to offer. Um, but also, let's not go down the full evangelist route and pretend that by 2025, every fleet in Australia and every plumber that you call is going to be coming out to see you in a Chinese electric ute because this product, it really isn't that product, if you know what I mean. So I could see how the eDeliver 9 would appeal to companies that have a large fleet of, say, delivery vans, for example. I could see where the, mm. where the MIFA 9, which, by the way, 
does that actually stand for anything? Is it just a made up name? Because um, they capitalize it. Um, I can see how that would appeal to certain fleets. But who is the ET60 actually targeted at? Is there a specific fleet market that LDVC is an opening for? Yes. So there are a number of government fleets, uh, SMEs, you know, that now that have, uh, and also bigger corporates, um, that have pretty firm emissions targets. Most of them are voluntary because there is no national fuel uh, emission strategy in place just yet, although the Albanese government will be releasing one shortly. But there are a lot of big companies and big governments that have committed to offering lower emission solutions. And also, and, and again, I think the important thing to consider is part of converting your fleet to electric is you can't just do it overnight because you need to work out whether an electric vehicle is going to do all the things that you need it to do. And so buying a few of them, putting them out there on a trial basis, learning, figuring out what you need to change, ironing out all the kinks and the processes can be useful. So there'll be a number of companies that look at this and go, right, I'll buy a couple of them for a few hundred thousand dollars, small outlay to a company at that scale. We'll get our workers in them, familiarize our staff with them, learn how we charge them and all that stuff. And then once they actually come on stream in real numbers of prices that people can afford, we'll be ready to make the switch. That's sort of, I think, what LDV is going for. I don't think, I mean, there might be, there was a story that uh, I was being told by an LDV staffer that there is actually one private buyer they know of who has requested one, um, who's a real, you know, wealthy person with a holiday house who wants a ute to do the gardening and wants to make the difference and have something green. I think that's kind of the dream scenario. I don't think there's too many people that are going to fit that bill. It's going to mostly be SMEs and government fleets. But yes, I think they're not going to sell in huge numbers, but there will be a sliver of, of, of that side of things that will probably buy vehicles. And I think you're spot on. I think the E-Deliver the, the e 9 probably makes a little bit more sense. Um, there's probably a clearer target market for that than the Ute at this stage. The Ute's probably as much a branding exercise as anything else, I would say. Very interesting. Well, to check those reviews out, head to carexpert.com.au. Um, and if you do see an LDV, any of these electric vehicles on the road, please send us a photo to podcast at carexpert.com.au. We'd love to know where you came across it and who was driving it. Scully, as we mentioned earlier, you've been driving the Alfa Romeo Tonale. How much does this new SUV EV mean to the Italian brand? So the Tonale is a really important car for Alfa Romeo because... It's the first step in a plan it calls kind of sort of, I think in quite a funny way, zero to zero. Um, at the moment, it has no electrified properly vehicles, but by 2027, it wants to sell only zero emissions vehicles. So it's going from zero, zero emissions vehicles to selling only zero emissions vehicles. Forget about the branding. It's the first plug-in hybrid Alfa Romeo has ever made. And it's essentially setting the direction for that broader switch to electric only in 2027. It's also quite important for Alpha because ultimately the brand needs to be profitable and needs to increase its volumes in the new Stellantis world. Um, this car takes on cars like the BMW X1, the Audi Q3, and the Volvo XC40, and it's in quite a popular segment. So if the Tonale is good, it opens the door for Alfa Romeo really to grow in a way it hasn't been able to with the Stelvio and with the Giulia, both of which are great cars, but neither of which has the mainstream appeal maybe the Tonale will. 
So I'm really curious about uh, how the Tenale drives, because obviously it's an Alfa Romeo, and I think we, we expect Alfa Romeos to be very fun to drive. But we also know that the Tenale rides on a, a an, an older FCA platform. Uh, it's not on one of Stellantis' uh, new platforms that are coming out. It's not on any of the, the PSA platforms uh, that are being used by other brands within the Stellantis empire. So how does it drive? Yeah, look, it, it drives uh, it drives fine. I know that's not necessarily the answer that a lot of Alpha fans wanted, but it is a very competent, very capable midsize, uh, small SUV, excuse me, and the plug-in hybrid system is quite well sorted. Does it feel like a traditional Alpha? It doesn't. But ultimately, where the brand is going, it needs less traditional Alpha and more appealing to the mainstream. So I think on all fronts, a good thing. Um, the plug-in hybrid system has a claimed range of up to 80 kilometers in the city, and we saw 55 k's of electric driving on a loop that mixed a bit of Italian town driving with some motorway and some country driving. Realistically, that's a really solid electric range in the real world, and when you're driving with the electric motor, it's got enough punch to get you up and going. It doesn't feel particularly quick, but you can do a pretty good impersonation of an electric vehicle in this car. When the petrol engine kicks in, it's all pretty well sorted as well. So it cuts in pretty quickly. It's not too noisy. Occasionally, it'll sit at an awkward uh, an awkward sort of engine speed uh, where it'll, like, it'll rev and kind of buzz a little bit. That's not ideal. But what we've found with a lot of plug-in hybrids is because they're running small petrol engines that are tasked with doing a lot of jobs, it's quite difficult to make them refined and feel natural. So Alpha's done a pretty good job on that front. When it comes to the ride and handling, Alpha wears at great pains actually to point out some of the changes it's made to the platform underneath it. Ultimately, it's got a different track. It's got different suspension set up to some of the other cars on this platform, including the Jeep Compass. Um, it's also got really quick light steering, which is a, a hallmark of the Julia and the Stelvio. In the real world, it feels a little bit heavy. It weighs more than 1,800 kilos and it's not a big car. So like a lot of plug-in hybrids, occasionally it can just sort of thump over little bumps and it floats around a little bit sometimes. But for the most part, it actually is pretty well sorted. It just does what you'd expect it to and kind of cruises along nicely. Um, we had the chance to drive the thing on the test track at Balocco uh, at Alfa Romeo's Proving Ground. And Alpha said that when you put it in its most aggressive um, dynamic mode, it actually has active torque vectoring. So when you turn in, it'll break the inside wheels and then send torque to the outside rear wheel on the motor to essentially tighten your line. And it was hard to feel on the road, but on the test track, when you put your foot down in the middle of a corner with a bit of steering wound on, the car didn't push understeer like a lot of these plug-in hybrids would. It actually did feel like there was some work going in from the computers to make it rotate. Will the average buyer care? I would be staggered. I'd be staggered if any buyer puts it in dynamic and goes, oh, yeah, I can feel the torque vectoring working there. But if you are a true long-running Alfa Romeo fan, you'll be pleased to know that some effort has gone into making it handle like an Alfa when you're really in a hurry. I'm also quite curious about what the interior is like because I think one thing Alfa Romeo interiors are known for is they, they tend to have that kind of driver focus, but they're not necessarily the most tech rich for better or worse. I mean, Alfa Romeo's CEO has said, Hey, you know, we don't need to have giant screens in our cabin. So does the Tonali stack up against its rivals when it comes to tech and material quality? It seems to, um, 
Previous stuff from Alpha we've driven has been a bit of a mixed bag. The Julia has a lovely cabin if you like driving because you sit low, the wheel is beautiful with those massive metal paddles, but the tech is nowhere near as good as what you get in the Germans. The Tonale moves in the right direction, definitely. It's got a, a central touchscreen running Alfa Romeo's version of essentially Uconnect, which is in Jeeps as well. Oh, sorry. It's got Uconnect 5, uh, which is essentially Alfa Romeo's version of what's in the latest Jeep cars. Um, and the system looks pretty good, works nice and quickly, and is full-featured. It's still not up to scratch with BMW iDrive or Audi's latest system, but it's not nearly as far off as the system in the Julia. And I actually really, really like Alfa Romeo's digital dash because not only do you get um, mapping and a trip computer and all sorts of info about the hybrid system, you can put it in a mode where it mimics the classic twin hood dials of an Alfa Romeo sports car with sort of nice green backlighting. It's essentially Alfa's version of what Ford has done with the Fox body Mustang. Uh, and it's a really cool touch that kind of plays into the brand's heritage without making it feel left behind. So on the technology front, it really is closer to the pack than ever. And I think even though the tech might not be quite on the same level as BMW or Audi, what makes up for it is the fact that the cabin looks and feels really quite special. The screen's angled nicely towards the driver. The steering wheel is straight out of the Stelvio, which on the one hand is good because it looks great, feels great. On the other hand, gives you these massive metal paddles that just get in the way and you'll never use, but that's the price of style. Um, the seats feel lovely and they've got really nice sporty bolstering on them. And the general design is totally different to anything you get in any of its German rivals or in the sort of Scandinavian chic Volvo XC40. So really positive marks to Alfa Romeo on that front. The cars that we drove were all Italian spec. They all felt pretty good. There are nice soft materials around, although the transmission tunnel is a little bit flexy. Ultimately, the proof is going to be in the pudding with that when the car gets to Australia. But one of the things Alfa really did talk about was the fact that its quality hasn't been great previously and it needs to improve it. So I suppose acknowledging the problem doesn't solve it, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. And we're now hoping that that will pay off with better built, better feeling cars that arrive in Australia late in 2023 when the FEV touches down. Um, Alpha spent quite a bit of time at the launch talking about the interior space and it said that it could fit four 1.9 metre tall people in the car at the same time. I'm a little bit taller than that again. I'm two metres tall and look, I'm sure you probably could. I don't know that you'd necessarily want to, but Given the cars it competes against, I think it's actually quite spacious back there. And had Alpha not mentioned the 1.9 metre thing, we'd have only good things to say about it. The back seats are really quite spacious. There's good tow room and good leg room behind the front seats. Uh, they've got air vents and charging ports back there and a fold-down central armrest. Headroom's not great. The roofline does slope quite a bit. So when you look left, you sort of you see cloth if you're tall rather than window. And the door opening itself is quite small. But Ultimately, alongside an X1 or an XC40, it, it feels a little bit bigger again. Um, slightly disappointing is the boot. Uh, it's down on what you get in an X1 FEV or even in the non-FEV Tonale, but it is still pretty wide and pretty long. So you'll be able to get some awkwardly shaped things in there. So this is a segment that Alfa Romeo has never competed in before. Does the Tonale have uh, a unique seller, a, a unique selling point that makes it stand out above its, you know, its Europe, its other European rivals beyond the fact that it has an Alfa Romeo badge and, and Alfa Romeo styling? 
Look, I think in this case, the Alfa Romeo badge and the Alfa Romeo styling are the selling points, but they're actually going to be allowed to do their thing because the fundamental product is really strong or it feels really strong based on what was quite a brief first drive. I think the issue with a lot of Alfa Romeo stuff previously has been that Alfa's kind of assumed that people will put up with the car's quirks or will enjoy the fact that it's not quite as good at certain things as the Germans because it is an Alfa Romeo. And ultimately, some buyers will, but most won't. You look at the Julia and maybe Alfa's deal, in fact, definitely Alfa's deal network is smaller than the Germans and definitely it doesn't market as much. But ultimately, the Julia is too small in the back seat. The technology is not up to scratch and therefore buyers who might be looking at one, unless they're a real Alfa fan, aren't willing to put up with those compromises. In this case, the Tenale actually feels like it's got the tech and the design inside and the space inside to compete toe-to-toe with its rivals. It feels like the powertrain is up to scratch enough as plug-in hybrids go, the way it drives is refined enough as plug-in hybrids go, that it it can compete toe-to-toe with the Germans purely based on its competency. And the Alpha design and the interesting interior are the cherries on top that'll make you choose it over something a little more boring. And as a blueprint for Alpha going forward, I think that's a pretty good one. Well, if you would like to know more about the Tenali, the review is live at Car Expert now. Well, that brings an end to this week's podcast. Hey, Scully, something mighty big is coming to Car Expert. It sure is, Mandy. We're going to have Will in uh, in the first developed world. He's going to be out of Brisbane and down in Melbourne. Um, and the whole Car Expert team is going to be together, which is quite rare. Um, we're doing our Ute Mega Test. We've got 13 cars, uh, everything from the GWM use all the way through to some big American trucks um, and between Lang Lang and the Australian Automotive Research Centre and the roads in between, we're going to be testing everything from off-roading to towing to on-road performance to zero to 100. Uh, I believe the video team is preparing to put out something like five videos. So there's going to be a lot of content to come from that over the coming months. Um, and the next week or so is going to be a really busy one at Car Expert. But I don't know about you, Will. I'm really excited. I am really excited as well. Uh, it, it will be great to have everybody in the one place. And uh, it'll actually be my first time at Lang Lang, believe it or not. So that'll be really exciting. Uh, is the team off to anywhere else aside from the mega test at all? or? Yeah, so uh, Al Bors and Tony are going to be traveling a little bit. Um, Bors is off to Spain to drive the new plug-in hybrid Mercedes C63. Um, and Crawford is off to Lisbon to drive the new Honda Civic Type R. Um, of the two of them, I'm actually more intrigued about the Civic Type R, I think. And then next week, uh, Will, the man himself, is off to Ingolstadt in Germany to drive the new Audi Q8 e-tron. And I believe there might even be a sneak peek at the... Uh, the Q6, the smaller car as well, that's coming up. So it's going to be an interesting trip for you, Will. Yes, it will be. So I'll, I'll miss out on the, on the last couple of days of uh, of the Ute Mega Test, but I'll be jet-setting uh, off to Germany, as you mentioned, but also the Canary Islands as well. So that'll be a bit of fun. <laughs> what? You lucky duck. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you very much, William Stopford and Scott Colley. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy. <laughs>